Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking with Dr. Eugene Chang on his article, The Effect of Maxillary and Trostomy Size on the Sinus Microbiome. Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon and Carl Storrs Endoscopy America. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Eugene Chang from Tucson, Arizona. We will be discussing his article, which is currently available online and is entitled, The Effect of Maxillary Sinus Antrostomy Size on the Sinus Microbiome. Eugene, welcome to the podcast. Tim, so glad that you could have me on. Absolutely. Well, we've been Debating the appropriate size of the endoscopic maxillary antrostomy, it seems, for decades. And it also seems that based on your study, we will continue to debate the appropriate size. But that being said, your study helps us, I think, to understand some of the ramifications that we don't initially think about when we're sizing our antrostomy. I would say that my practice has changed over the years in that the size of the maxillary antrostomy used to vary quite a lot in my practice. Some small, some large, and it probably depended more than anything on pathology and what I thought the pathology needed at that time. But now I would say that almost all of my maxillary antrostomies are on the large side, And I imagine this is to meet my desire to deliver topical medicines to the sinus postoperatively, but it's it's been clear to me that I don't understand all the ramifications of sizing this antrostomy. So I was I was really interested to to read your study. So why don't you tell us, you know, why you decided to study this and what, what the goal of your study was? Well, I think a lot of my questions mirror a lot of your questions as well too. During our training, we were actually taught to be quite minimal in residency. This is a, you know, with the huge way of thinking that let's be as minimal as possible and let's let the natural tissue do its job. And also for me, you know, working both in the clinic as well as in research, you know, our definitions of chronic rhinosinusitis, and I think that this is important, is, is really based on patient symptoms and potentially our endoscopy or our radiologic findings. But we always end our definitions with we think that there's ongoing chronic inflammation and that infection has a large component to this. But it really isn't part of our basic clinical practice. We don't measure inflammatory mediators and we don't measure a lot of the bacteria or even the bacterial communities that are present. So one secondary goal outside of just how large this size could be is what do we need in order to refine our diagnoses so that we can make things more personalized, so that we can identify patients that may benefit from a mini-antrosomy versus a mega-antrosomy. And I think that question, as you had alluded to, is we're probably not going to get the answer today, but it at least helps us go down that path of having maybe more scientific thinking about how to choose. Now, you mentioned, and this is something I wanted to raise, you mentioned mega-antrostomy, and that's what you call the size, the larger antrostomy that you've reported in your study. And I didn't want our listeners to confuse mega-antrostomy the way you've defined it, which is just the large-size antrostomy, and mega-antrostomy as we might think about 
in the patient who has very severe maxillary sinus disease where we, we actually perform almost a endoscopic medial maxillectomy and take part of the inferior turbinate and the medial wall of the maxillary sinus to the floor of the nasal cavity. Why don't you define what you mean in your study by mega maxillary entrostomy? Uh, so uh, thanks for clarifying that point, Tim. So you're absolutely correct. We just called it mega just because it rhymes and, and works well with many. But you're right. In terms of our mega antrostomy, what we like to do is we like to, again, find the natural os, as you should do in any maxillary antrostomy case, whether it be mini or mega. But then we take the os and we enlarge it slightly anteriorly up to the lacrimal bone. And then we go posteriorly um, to the back wall of the maxillary sinus. We do not disturb the inferior turbinate at all. So, you know, okay. as you had described, taking it down to the floor of the nose, I actually almost call that an endoscopic medial maxillectomy in that you're removing that entire maxillary wall or the medial border of that. And so our mega antrostomy, A, essentially allows us to really visualize um, the sinus. It allows us to potentially access those areas that we may not have access with a, a more standard size, uh, particularly areas of the anterior maxillary wall. And uh, it, it by no means is a endoscopic medial maxillectomy. So, so thank you for clarifying that point. Yeah, absolutely. And then while we're at it, describe the mini antrostomy as well. Absolutely. So our mini antrostomy, what we did was we used a 30-degree scope, as we usually do to find a natural loss. And then we threaded in a clarent balloon, or we used a very small olive tip suction just to enlarge the area. So we really didn't take down that posterior fontanelle. We tried not to disturb any of the tissue around there. And we did flush. We did irrigate. If there was mucopurulence present, we suctioned all of that out. And then we just enlarged it to the point where we could see through there for postoperative care. But the goal was really not to disturb the surrounding tissue around that area. Tim, when you were in the introduction, you were talking about how you manage this. Yeah. And I was just on call this weekend, and I was thinking of a potential analogy of uh, peritonsillar abscesses. So, you know, we see a lot of peritonsillar abscesses, and we have to make a decision, is this uh, something for a peritonsillar abscess drainage, or do you go for more of a Quincy tonsillectomy? So, you could potentially use that analogy as well, too. You know, our mini-antrostomy, our goal was to flush out any mucus and purulence within that sinus and then hopefully let the uh, maxillary sinus kind of heal itself. And then our mega-antrostomy was to really provide a large opening so that we could potentially deliver uh, irrigations. Uh, we didn't use any topical antibiotics in these patients because we didn't want to muddy the case, but essentially to allow postoperative clearance. And you mentioned a clarent, um, and just to, to make this clear, they, they did sponsor this study or they, they funded this study. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. So a clarent has this really nice program called the Investigator Initiated Studies. I mean, it's a fantastic collaboration, but I do want to make clear that they did fund the study to make sure that there's no issues with conflicts of interest or pure transparency. But their goal and how we wrote this grant was we really want to see what the immunologic and what the microbiologic changes were for the mini versus omega. And they were actually excited about that. As you see for the outputs of the study, I really don't think we are able to decide one way or another, but it did give us the funding to allow us to kind of perform these very technical but also quite expensive tests. 
talk a little bit about the microbiome and its importance and why a surgical antrostomy size or technique might impact the microbiome. So I think there's been a, a lot of literature on the microbiome. And from my standpoint, it's really what does the microbial communities look like at a 30,000-foot view? And what I mean by that is when you're that high, you can tell what lives in there, but you really don't give any particular significance to that. And it's non-biased. And what I, what I mean by that is typically when we culture in our clinic, we'll take a swab and we'll take some thick mucus or some purulent debris, and we'll put it in a culture cavity, and we'll see what grows, what's more prevalent, what's more, I hate to use the word aggressive, but what will knock out all the others within that culture agar plate. In terms of the microbiome, what we're really looking at is we're looking at a sample, and so it's almost like a census. So who lives yeah. in there, and what's the diversity within that population? So the goal really is not to make any conclusions as to which one is good or which one is bad, because I think that the more we know about the microbiome. Certain bacteria can be good or they can be bad. It really depends on what situation and what the diversity of that community is. But what I want to look at in terms of surgery was we do a lot of things. We do a lot of antibiotics. We do a lot of steroids. And we also operate a fair amount as well, too. So what does surgery do to affect the microbiome? Got it. And that makes a lot of sense. And you brought up the culture, and I always like to you know, raise the discussion that I think these cultures that we've counted on for, for so many years, and, and honestly, many of us continue to use these cultures very, very routinely in our practices. And I think that they vastly oversimplify what, what is actually going on within the sinus and certainly with regard to the microbes that are involved. And whereas I really find the microbiome concept to ring more true, that is, it makes sense that there would be many different species of bacteria inhabiting the sinuses, that some of those species help with the health of the sinuses and some don't. Perhaps they have to be in some relationship or some proportion in order for the sinus to maintain its health. But I'm afraid that a lot of times when we put that culture swab into the mucopurulence and then grow something on an auger plate and make this assumption that that is the pathogen because that's what we've grown, that that's a, a not only a gross oversimplification of what's going on. Well, it is. It's a gross oversimplification of what's going on. What do you? How do you think about that, Eugene? I think you're hitting on a lot of uh, great points, Tim. And so when we swab the nose, we are looking for answers, right? We don't routinely yeah. swab the nose in all of our patients. And what we're looking for is we're looking for a bacteria that we can treat. And that's a good thing most of the time. We're surgeons. We want to figure out a problem that we can fix. But sometimes that may not give us enough information, and it really narrows our focus of what exactly is going on within the sinus. So if we only treat those things that we can see and we don't necessarily understand why we're treating those, I think we can, just like you had said, oversimplify things and potentially lead to overprescription of antibiotics. Uh, you know, there was recently a JAMA article where, unfortunately, our practices got highlighted as the number one wrong prescription or overuse for antibiotics, and sinusitis was the first diagnosis that came out 
in the state healthcare studies. So we can really identify what the communities are like and potentially identify therapeutics that may not be antibiotics if we can look at inflammation, if we can look at surgery in terms of manual clearance of this mucopurulence and restoring that normal cavity and its, its host innate immunity, then I think we're going to be looking ahead and kind of advancing things forward. You randomized, well, you took a patient and then you randomized the side in which you were going to do a large antrostomy or a mega antrostomy as compared to a mini antrostomy. Absolutely. And and this was, I review a lot of papers as you do. And, and when we take a look at chronic rhinosinusitis as a whole, I think that one of the difficulties that we have when we either look at our small groups or our large groups is that chronic rhinosinusitis is very heterogeneous. And what I mean by heterogeneous is that your aunt that may have sinus disease may look completely different than your sister, than your uncle, than your brother, or than your patient. And what that makes difficult is making treatment algorithms. And so our goal is to kind of see what things look like in terms of our patient and not go just on our anecdotal evidence, but maybe use knowledge and science and practice guidelines to help guide our care. And that's very difficult to do in chronic rhinosinusitis because everybody is so different. And so we use this kind of philosophy of this N of one. And so let me describe that a little bit. We use each person as their own control. And that can be very, very beneficial. And the reason being is that you avoid a lot of the confounders. You avoid somebody maybe not irrigating or not paying attention and following your directions because we're um, comparing both their left versus their right or their mini versus their mega size. So hopefully a lot of those confounders are decreased and we can specifically more, we can more narrow our focus down to what was the intervention that we did and what was their potential outcome or effect. I guess you had to approach the patient and say, look, we have no idea whether a mini-antrostomy or a large or mega-antrostomy is the correct or the best option here. And so, therefore, we can randomize one side one way and one side the other way as we go to answer this question scientifically and you could really sometimes it's hard to do these studies because we have we go into the study with such biases that we can't really look the patient in the eye and and say we really have no idea what size of antrostomy is optimal yeah i think um it's hard to trust a surgeon whose first line is we have no idea <laughs> yeah that's um, right No, I was very honest with these patients, and and I I guess I delivered the message slightly differently. What I said was that we know that both of these can be effective, and we don't necessarily know what the differences are between the two. In terms of complications and potential benefits and advantages, I briefly discussed those as well, but I said that, look, both of these actually are part of our standard care, and it's really individual or surgeon-driven, and so we'd like to know those answers. And I I know in your population, because I've read many of your articles, your population is very keen on answering these questions as are the population that we've dealt with here, just because we've engaged them in a lot of our clinical research. So, you know, the the biggest thing It's a really good point you, I'm sorry, it's a really good point you make. I found that the patients that we enroll in these studies, they're actually quite interested in contributing, and that's most of the utility that they get out of being involved in these studies is the fact that 
they believe they've helped advance the the science of the field and hopefully someone else down the line will benefit from from what they've done absolutely okay so tell us a bit more about the study so you randomized these patients and then you measured several different things both at the patient level and at the sinus level Yes, so let me let me start with the patient level first. So we looked at symptoms in terms of how did they feel, and then we also looked at endoscopic findings. And, and the reason why I want to start there is that's the standard of our clinical practice. So in our preoperative workups as well as in our postoperative care, we always look and we always ask. And the really important thing about this study was that Patients really couldn't tell one versus the other. None of our patients came in and said, well, the left side or the right side is the one that's giving me more difficulty today. And overall, they were very happy with the results of their surgery in terms of their improvements and all of their symptoms. And so that's good. I know the questionnaire doesn't really distinguish between side or not. But more importantly, our patients couldn't distinguish, so I think that's important. And in terms of our endoscopy, certainly it was a little bit more challenging to look within the, the mini-os. It did require a little bit of angulation with our 30-degree scope, but all of our patients healed well. We were initially worried about scarring or stenosis or recirculation, and we didn't find any of those in either of the two groups. Okay, and, was, and we should, I'm sorry, we should mention that Part of your exclusion criteria were patients who had polyps or who had severe forms of inflammatory mucosal disease. At least that's what it sounded like looking at your study. So this was a, a more carefully selected population that had chronic rhinosinusitis without polyposis and without the more severe forms of inflammatory mucosal disease. Absolutely. We really wanted to look and we wanted to be fair. I think my treatment algorithm, and I'd, I'd love to hear yours, but my treatment algorithm really changes when there is chronic rhinosinusitis with polyposis yeah. or significant disease just because of my concerns or, or my desire to really improve postoperative access to delivery of medications. Yeah, so these, for instance, I, I wouldn't, if if we had included patients with polyposis, I would not have agreed to enroll patients and randomize sides to a mini-antrostomy in certain patient populations because that just doesn't seem to be the right thing to do. And I don't know that we can necessarily prove that, but it seems like the evidence certainly leans towards that, and expert opinion, in my mind, without a doubt, leans towards that. Absolutely. And and so, you know, knowing that we did want to have a tight group of patients that we could identify. And so to go back in terms of identifying those patients, these were those with very minimal disease. They had to have similar disease in both sides because, again, we don't want to bias one versus the other. You know, they did not have polyposis, which I think is very, very important. Some of our patients did have this recurrent acute rhinosinusitis, and there is controversy of whether to offer them surgery or not. But we were very honest, and we offered them both medical therapy or surgical therapy. And these patients who had had recurrent episodes did want surgery, and so we offered them this option, and they did enroll in this. So a balance between RARS and CRS without polyposis um, with more minimal disease. Okay, so tell us what you found at the sinus level. What we found in terms of looking within the tissues, so we, we swabbed the uh, sinuses with two swabs. One was to look at cytokines. Cytokines are essentially the signals that our sinuses, or the more specifically the lining of the sinuses or the epithelia, 
secrete. And what that shows us is it gives us an overall picture of inflammation. You know, are the, is it a very inflamed, angry cavity, or is this a, a cavity that's relatively calm and homeostatic? When we took a look at the um, cytokines on both sides, we really didn't see any change, which is good. And so what this means is that the surgery in itself, whether it be small or large, A, in my mind, doesn't cause significant tissue damage to cause a, a severe anti-inflammatory response. And then B, potentially our areas that we really want to preserve in terms of host defense are relatively preserved whether you make a mini or a mega antrostomy. And so you measured all of these things and did a number of comparisons between mini and mega antrostomy. And you didn't find a great deal of difference is is probably the way to summarize it. Thanks for publishing my negative data, Tim. I, I appreciate <laughs> but But I do think that this is important data. And let me key in on some potential trends that we may have seen in the microbiome. In terms of the microbiome, interestingly, we, we look at several different factors, but probably the easiest ones to look at are how many bacteria are there. So we can we can quantify that. And what we found was that in the minis, there was typically less bacteria that was found initially but that increased over time, and and I'll come back to that in just a brief moment. In terms of the type of bacteria, we found a little bit more bacteria that we would normally find within our normal kind of acute sinusitis population, including a slight predominance of staph. So we can look at the diversity, so what types of bacteria are there and how predominant are they. And in the minis, there was a slight increase in staph, although not statistically significant. And then we can also look at how did this change over time? And so this is quite interesting. Uh, we, we do see a change in time. Uh, so the minis typically tended to have less bacteria immediately after surgery, but then slightly increased compared to the omega. And that was probably the most significant thing that we found. Mm-hmm. So this may allude to um, how well are we able to kind of postoperatively irrigate these cavities. And this is a decision that I always struggle with because I see both sides of the coin. When I make a big antrostomy, I feel great because I feel like I can really irrigate that cavity and I can really take a good look. But some of my patients will complain that, you know, they do their irrigations or their washes. And, you know, 30 minutes later when they're driving their car or they make, you know, they turn their head, they, they get a gush of fluid that essentially is retained irrigation fluid. And they are maybe not as excited about having a larger cavity that we can irrigate and observe, but then also can retain these fluids. Interesting. So will you tell me and the listeners, how much did it cost to do this study? I mean, it was 12 patients, and you've done a number of different cytokine analyses here. How much does a study like this cost? There are costs in terms of time, and there are costs in terms of materials, and then there's also costs in terms of analyses. So in terms of time, um, fortunately, this really didn't slow our, our clinic flow very much, and it wasn't an additional procedure. So in terms of time, from our standpoint, that was relatively negligible. In terms of materials, these are expensive analyses to run. So our cytokine analyses, our multiplex bead analyses, these require quite expensive machine that runs about $40,000. And running the um, samples, although we are able in this multiplex format to run multiple cytokines at once, it usually is about $1,000 for a 96-well plate, so it's not insignificant. In terms of the microbiome, we do use PCR, and PCR is a standard of, of any of the labs as well as our lab. And we have a real-time PCR machine as well, too. But the real bulk of things is the analysis. So 
It's a lot of big data, a lot of bacteria that we are identifying both at the genus level as well as the individual taxonomic level. And so being more specific about that is where the cost of time in terms of getting our biostatisticians. I've had to brush up and learn how to use Chime, which is one of the more commonly used microbiome programs out there. And so it is a significant amount of time, but hopefully as these potentially become more incorporated into clinical practice, those costs will decrease. So at least tens of thousands of dollars, and that's not including the time that you and your co-investigators have spent, which you've downplayed, but is very significant and in the end maybe one of the most costly things of all. You just love to do it so you don't think of it as time that requires funding, but in the end, it certainly does. So then let me ask you the you know, $100,000 question. I guess $100,000 at a minimum to do a study like this. Will this study change your practice on how large you open the maxillary sinus? It helps me. It does. I think I take a lot of factors into play, and again, this is you know my surgical anecdotal mind. When there's significant disease, polyposis, Access, if access is an issue, I, I make a big antrostomy. But in those patients that have recurrent acute rhinosinusitis, I don't. I make a moderately sized or even a smaller size antrostomy. The reason being is that I think if I can get them over the hump and I can get them to kind of clear this mucopurulence, then, then their body will be able to heal themselves. So it really depends on the duration of time. One thing I always ask my patients is, how long has this been going on for? If it is a recurrent, acute type picture, I'm more likely to offer a smaller, minimally invasive procedure. Whereas if this is a long-standing chronic inflammatory issue, you see potential other comorbidities, including asthma, including allergic rhinitis and AIDS disease, then I'm more prone to do a larger antrostomy. And that makes a lot of sense. I was just, I was thinking it in terms of, thinking of it in terms of, well, if it's something that I could do in the office, that generally means less severe mucosal inflammatory disease, and the balloon technology is excellent for office-based procedures in particular. So in that population, I would probably perform a mini or a balloon dilation. And if I'm taking someone to the operating room, then I'm probably doing a much larger, even what you would call a mega antrostomy, with the idea that I'm not convinced based on the level of inflammatory mucosal disease that I'm not going to need a topical saline steroid rinse postoperatively to help really fundamentally control the inflammatory mucosal disease. How's that sound to you? I think you said my words, but much more eloquently, so oh. thank you for doing that. <laughs> no, All right, Eugene. Well, listen, thank you so much for your research, for presenting it. I mean, you call it a negative study. I, I know that that's the terminology that we use in this day and age, but I don't find it to be a negative study in the sense that it really does add to our knowledge as to what's going on when we as surgeons manipulate tissues and, and the way in which we manipulate them, what's going on at the molecular level. And, you know, these are things we've just wondered historically, and now we have the tools to begin to really understand that. And I think just being cognizant of 
the fact that things are going on that we can't see with our naked eye. We as surgeons, it's all about what we can see, but there are so many ramifications that are microscopic and not visible to us. And at least if we have an awareness of that, that's got to make us better over time. Absolutely. I I love seeing things that I can't see, or at least trying to find ways that we can. Love it. Let's end it on that, Eugene. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Very good. Take care. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.